Section nine of Chapter eighteen of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter eighteen. Section nine. Meanwhile, the Master of Stair was forming, in concert with Breadalbane and Argyle, a plan for the destruction of the people of Glencoe. It was necessary to take the king's pleasure, not, indeed, as to the details of what was to be done, but as to the question whether Macian and his people should or should not be treated as rebels out of the pale of the ordinary law. The Master of Stair found no difficulty in the royal closet. William had, in all probability, never heard the Glencoe men mentioned except as Benditti. He knew that they had not come in by the prescribed day, that they had come in after that day he did not know. If he paid any attention to the matter, he must have thought that so fair an opportunity of putting an end to the devastations and depredations from which a quiet and industrious population had suffered so much ought not to be lost. An order was laid before him for signature. He signed it, but, if Burnett may be trusted, did not read it. Whoever has seen anything of public business knows that princes and ministers daily sign, and indeed must sign, documents which they have not read, and of all documents a document relating to a small tribe of mountaineers, living in a wilderness not set down in any map, was least likely to interest a sovereign whose mind was full of schemes on which the fate of Europe might depend. But, even on the supposition that he read the order to which he affixed his name, there seems to be no reason for blaming him. That order, directed to the commander of the forces in Scotland, runs thus. As for Macian of Glencoe and that tribe, if they can be well distinguished from the other Highlanders, it will be proper, for the vindication of public justice, to extirpate that set of thieves. These words naturally bear a sense perfectly innocent, and would, but for the horrible event which followed, have been universally understood in that sense. It is undoubtedly one of the first duties of every government to extirpate gangs of thieves. This does not mean that every thief ought to be treacherously assassinated in his sleep, or even that every thief ought to be publicly executed after a fair trial, but that every gang, as a gang, ought to be completely broken up, and that whatever severity is indispensably necessary for that end ought to be used. If William had read and weighed the words which were submitted to him by his secretary, he would probably have understood them to mean that Glencoe was to be occupied by troops that resistance if resistance were attempted was to be put down with a strong hand that severe punishment was to be inflicted on those leading members of the clan who could be proved to have been guilty of great crimes that some active young freebooters who were more used to handle the broadsword than the plough and who did not seem likely to settle down into quiet labourers were to be sent to the army in the low countries that others were to be transported to the american plantations and that those macdonalds who were suffered to remain in their native valley were to be disarmed and required to give hostages for good behaviour a plan very near resembling this had we know actually been the subject of much discussion in the political circles of edinburgh there can be little doubt that william would have deserved well of his people if he had in this manner extirpated not only the tribe of macian but every highland tribe whose calling was to steal cattle and burn houses the extirpation planned by the master of stair was of a different kind his design was to butcher the whole race of thieves the whole damnable race such was the language in which his hatred vented itself he studied the geography of the wild country which surrounded Glencoe, and made his arrangements with infernal skill. If possible, the blow must be quick, and crushing, and altogether unexpected. But if Macian should apprehend danger, and should attempt to take refuge in the territories of his neighbours, he must find every road barred. The pass of Rannoch must be secured. The laird of Weems, who was powerful in Strathtay, must be told that, if he harbours the outlaws, he does so at his peril. 
Breadalbane promised to cut off the retreat of their fugitives on one side, Macallan Moore on another. It was fortunate, the secretary wrote, that it was winter. This was the time to maul the wretches. The nights were so long, the mountain tops so cold and stormy, that even the hardiest men could not long bear his exposure to the open air without a roof or a spark of fire. That the women and the children could find shelter in the desert was quite impossible. While he wrote thus, no thought that he was committing a great wickedness crossed his mind. He was happy in the approbation of his own conscience. Duty, justice, nay, charity and mercy were the names under which he disguised his cruelty. Nor is it by any means improbable that the disguise imposed upon himself. Hill, who commanded the forces assembled at Fort William, was not entrusted with the execution of the design. He seems to have been a humane man. He was much distressed when he learned that the government was determined on severity, and it was probably thought that his heart might fail him in the most critical moment. He was directed to put a strong detachment under the orders of his second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton. To Hamilton a significant hint was conveyed that he had now an excellent opportunity of establishing his character in the estimations of those who were at the head of affairs. Of the troops entrusted to him, a large proportion were Campbell's, and belonged to a regiment lately raised by Argyle, and called by Argyle's name. It was probably thought that, on such an occasion, humanity might prove too strong for the mere habit of military obedience, and that little reliance could be placed on hearts which had not been ulcerated by a feud such as had long raged between the people of Macian and the people of Moor. Had Hamilton marched openly against the Glencoe men and put them to the edge of the sword, the act would probably not have wanted apologists, and most certainly would not have wanted precedents. But the master of Stair had strongly recommended a different mode of proceeding. If the least alarm were given, the nest of robbers would be found empty, and to hunt them down in so wild a region would, even with all the help that Breadalbane and Argyle could give, be a long and difficult business. Better, he wrote, not meddle with them than meddle to no purpose. When the thing is resolved, let it be secret and sudden. He was obeyed, and it was determined that the Glencoe men should perish, not by military execution, but by the most dastardly and perfidious form of assassination. On the 1st of February, a hundred and twenty soldiers of Argyle's regiment, commanded by a captain named Campbell and a lieutenant named Lindsay, marched to Glencoe. Captain Campbell was commonly called in Scotland Glenlyon, from the pass in which his property lay. He had every qualification for the service on which he was employed, an unblushing forehead, a smooth, lying tongue, and a heart of adamant. He was also one of the few Campbells who were likely to be trusted and welcomed by the Macdonalds for his niece was married to Alexander, the second son of Macian. The sight of the redcoats approaching caused some anxiety among the population of the valley. John, the eldest son of the chief, came, accompanied by twenty clansmen, to meet the strangers, and asked what this visit meant. Lieutenant Lindsay answered that the soldiers came as friends, and wanted nothing but quarters. They were kindly received, and were lodged under the thatched roofs of the little community. Glenlyon and several of his men were taken into the house of a tracksman who was named, from the cluster of cabins over which he exercised authority, in Verrigan. Lindsay was accommodated nearer to the abode of the old chief. Auchentriator, one of the principal men of the clan, who governed the small hamlet of Auchnaean, found room there for a party commanded by a sergeant named Barber. Provisions were liberally supplied. There was no want of beef, which had probably fattened in distant pastures, nor was any payment demanded for in hospitality as in thievery the gaelic marauders rivalled the bedouins during twelve days the soldiers lived familiarly with the people of the glen old macian who had before felt many misgivings as to the relation in which he stood to the government seems to have been pleased with the visit 
The officers passed much of their time with him and his family. The long evenings were cheerfully spent by the peat fire with the help of some packs of cards which had found their way to that remote corner of the world, and of some French brandy which was probably part of James' farewell gift to his Highland supporters. Glenlyon appeared to be warmly attached to his niece and her husband Alexander. Every day he came to their house to take his morning draught. Meanwhile he observed with minute attention all the avenues by which, when the signal for the slaughter should be given, the Macdonalds might attempt to escape to the hills, and he reported the result of his observations to Hamilton. Hamilton fixed five o'clock in the morning of the 13th of February for the deed. He hoped that, before that time, he should reach Glencoe with four hundred men, and should have stopped all the earths in which the old fox and his two cubs, so Macian and his sons were nicknamed by the murderers, could take refuge. But at five precisely, whether Hamilton had arrived or not, Glenlyon was to fall on and to slay every Macdonald under seventy. The night was rough. Hamilton and his troops made slow progress and were long after their time. While they were contending with the wind and snow, Glenlyon was supping and playing at cards with those whom he meant to butcher before daybreak. He and Lieutenant Lindsay had engaged themselves to dine with the old chief on the morrow. Late in the evening, a vague suspicion that some evil was intended crossed the mind of the chief's eldest son. The soldiers were evidently in a restless state, and some of them uttered strange cries. Two men, it is said, were overheard whispering. "'I do not like this job,' one of them uttered. "'I should be glad to fight the Macdonalds, but to kill men in their beds.' "'We must do as we are bid,' answered another voice. "'If there is anything wrong, our officers must answer for it.' John MacDonald was so uneasy that, soon after midnight, he went to Glenlyon's quarters. Glenlyon and his men were all up, and seemed to be getting their arms ready for action. John, much alarmed, asked what these preparations meant. Glenlyon was profuse of friendly assurances. "'Some of Glengarry's people have been harrying the country. We are getting ready to march against them. You are quite safe. Do you think that, if you were in any danger, I should not have given a hint to your brother Sandy and his wife?' John's suspicions were quieted. He returned to his house and lay down to rest. It was five in the morning. Hamilton and his men were still some miles off, and the avenues which they were to have secured were open. But the orders which Glenlyon had received were precise, and he began to execute them at the little village where he was himself quartered. His host in Verrigan and nine other Macdonalds were dragged out of their beds, bound hand and foot, and murdered. A boy twelve years old clung round the captain's legs, and begged hard for life. He would do anything, he would go anywhere, he would follow Glenlyon round the world. Even Glenlyon, it is said, showed signs of relenting, but a ruffian named Drummond shot the child dead. At Ochnian the taxman Auchintriator was up early that morning, and was sitting with eight of his family round the fire, when a volley of musketry laid him and seven of his companions dead or dying on the floor. His brother, who alone had escaped unhurt, called to Sergeant Barber, who commanded the slayers, and asked as a favor to be allowed to die in the open air. "'Well, I will do you that favor for the sake of your meat which I have eaten.' The mountaineer, bold, athletic, and favored by the darkness, came forth, rushed on the soldiers who were about to level their pieces at him, flung his plaid over their faces, and was gone in a moment. Meanwhile Lindsay had knocked at the door of the old chief, and had asked for admission in friendly language. The door was opened. McGeehan, while putting on his clothes and calling to his servants to bring some refreshment for his visitors, was shot through the head. Two of his attendants were slain with him. His wife was already up and dressed in such finery as the princesses of the rude highland glens were accustomed to wear. The assassins pulled off her clothes and trinkets. The rings were not easily taken from her fingers, but a soldier tore them away with his teeth. She died on the following day. 
The statesmen to whom chiefly this great crime is to be ascribed had planned it with consummate ability. But the execution was complete in nothing but in guilt and infamy. A succession of blunders saved three-fourths of the Glencoe men from the fate of their chief. All the moral qualities which fit men to bear a part in a massacre Hamilton and Glenlyon possessed in perfection, but neither seems to have had much professional skill. Hamilton had arranged his plan without making allowance for bad weather, and this in a country and at a season when the weather was very likely to be bad. The consequence was that the fox-earths, as he called them, were not stopped in time. Glenlyon and his men committed the error of dispatching their hosts with firearms instead of using the cold steel. The peal and flash of gun after gun gave notice, from three different parts of the valley at once, that murder was doing. From fifty cottages the half-naked peasantry fled under cover of the night to the recesses of their pathless glen. Even the sons of Macian, who had been especially marked out for destruction, contrived to escape. They were roused from sleep by faithful servants. John, who by the death of his father had become the patriarch of the tribe, quitted his dwelling just as twenty soldiers with fixed bayonets marched up to it. It was broad day long before Hamilton arrived. He found the work not even half performed. About thirty corpses lay wallowing in blood on the dunghills before the doors. One or two women were seen among the number, and, a yet more fearful and piteous sight, a little hand, which had been lopped in the tumult of the butchery from some infant. One aged MacDonald was found alive. He was probably too infirm to fly, and as he was above seventy was not included in the orders under which Glenlyon had acted. Hamilton murdered the old man in cold blood. The deserted hamlets were then set on fire, and the troops departed, driving away with them many sheep and goats, nine hundred kine, and two hundred of the small shaggy ponies of the highlands. It is said, and may but too easily be believed, that the sufferings of the fugitives were terrible. How many old men, how many women with babes in their arms, sank down and slept their last sleep in the snow? How many, having crawled, spent with toil and hunger, into nooks among the precipices, died in those dark holes, and were picked to the bone by the mountain ravens, can never be known. But it is probable that those who perished by cold, weariness, and want were not less numerous than those who were slain by the assassins. When the troops had retired, the Macdonalds crept out of the caverns of Glencoe, ventured back to the spot where the huts had formerly stood, collected the scorched corpses from among the smoking ruins, and performed some rude rites of sepulture. The tradition runs that the hereditary bard of the tribe took his seat on a rock which overhung the place of slaughter, and poured forth a long lament over his murdered brethren and his desolate home. Eighty years later that sad dirge was still repeated by the population of the valley. The survivors might well apprehend that they had escaped the shot and the sword only to perish by famine. The whole domain was a waste. Houses, barns, furniture, implements of husbandry, herds, flocks, horses, were gone. Many months must elapse before the clan would be able to rise on its own ground the means of supporting even the most miserable existence. It may be thought strange that these events should not have been instantly followed by a burst of execration from every part of the civilized world. The fact, however, is that years elapsed before the public indignation was thoroughly awakened, and that months elapsed before the blackest part of the story found credit even among the enemies of the government. That the massacre should not have been mentioned in the London gazettes, in the monthly mercuries which were scarcely less courtly than the gazettes, or in pamphlets licensed by official censors, is perfectly intelligible. But that no allusion to it should be found in private journals and letters, written by persons free from all restraint, may seem extraordinary. There is not a word on the subject in Evelyn's diary. In Narcissus Luttrell's diary is a remarkable entry made five weeks after the butchery. 
the letters from scotland he says described that kingdom as perfectly tranquil except that there was still some grumbling about ecclesiastical questions the dutch ministers regularly reported all the scotch news to their government they thought it worth while about this time to mention that a collier had been taken by a privateer near berwick that the edinburgh mail had been robbed that a whale with a tongue seventeen feet long and seven feet broad had been stranded near aberdeen but it is not hinted in any of their dispatches that there was any rumour of any extraordinary occurrence in the highlands reports that some of the macdonalds had been slain did indeed in about three weeks travel through edinburgh up to london but these reports were vague and contradictory and the very worst of them was far from coming up to the horrible truth the whig version of the story was that the old robber mechian had laid an ambuscade for the soldiers that he had been caught in his own snare and that he and some of his clan had fallen sword in hand the jacobite version written at edinburgh on the twenty third of march appeared in the paris gazette of the seventh of april glenlyon it was said had been sent with a detachment from argyle's regiment under cover of darkness to surprise the inhabitants of glencoe and had killed thirty-six men and boys and four women in this there was nothing very strange or shocking a night attack on a gang of freebooters occupying a strong natural fortress may be a perfectly legitimate military operation and in the obscurity and confusion of such an attack the most humane man may be so unfortunate as to shoot a woman or a child the circumstances which gave a peculiar character to the slaughter of glencoe the breach of faith the breach of hospitality the twelve days of feigned friendship and convivality of morning calls of social meals of health drinking of card playing were not mentioned by the edinburgh correspondent of the paris gazette and we may therefore confidently infer that those circumstances were as yet unknown even to inquisitive and busy malcontents residing in the scottish capital within a hundred miles of the spot where the deed had been done in the south of the island the matter produced as far as now can be judged scarcely any sensation to the londoner of those days appin was what caffraria or borneo is to us he was not more moved by hearing that some highland thieves had been surprised and killed than we are by hearing that a band of amicasa cattle-stealers has been cut off or that a bark full of malay pirates has been sunk he took it for granted that nothing had been done in glencoe beyond what was doing in many other glens there had been a night brawl one of a hundred night brawls between the macdonalds and the campbells and the campbells had knocked the macdonalds on the head End of section nine. Recording by Jen Raimundo.